we wanted our exhibition to really give us the current day viewer a sense of what it would have been like to enter into the contemporaries gallery. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mess screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials needed to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. My guests this week are Lauren Rosenblum and Christina Weil, curators of the exciting exhibition, A Model Workshop, Margaret Lohengrund and the Contemporaries, which will be on view September 21st through December 23rd at Print Center New York. Lohengrund was the first woman to open her own printmaking shop in the United States. A visionary leader, organizer, and critic within the mid-20th century New York printmaking community, and a driving force behind the revival of artistic lithography. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get mid-century with Christina and Lauren. Hi, Christina. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Miranda. It's great. Good. I'm very excited to chat with you both. I am always interested in print history. I think anyone who listens to this podcast or knows me knows that. I love talking with contemporary printmakers, but my degree in first introduction to printmaking was through a historical lens. So I'm really excited to talk with some fellow scholars and to learn more about this exciting exhibition. And before we do all of that, would you both please introduce yourselves and tell our dear listeners who you are, where you are, and what you do. My name is Christina Weil. I am an independent art historian, scholar, curator based in New York City. And I had the pleasure of speaking to Miranda several years ago at this point about my first book, which was on women artists who were part of the mid-century printmaking workshop or when it was in New York City, Atelier 17. Of course, Atelier 17 has a longer history than that, but we had a lovely conversation about about that. And I sort of focus on mid-century printmaking. That's my my bag. Um, My name is Lauren Rosenblum. I'm the Jensen Bryan Curator at the Print Center in Philadelphia, but I'm also based here in New York City, where I've been pursuing my doctoral degree in art history at the Graduate Center, City University, where I study also mid-century printmaking. And upon meeting Christina a handful of years back, we found kindred interest in this decade and the innovations. And it's been a joy to get to know Christina personally as well as we've pursued this project for the last three years. Beautiful. And the, the project to which we speak, which brings us all together, 
is an exhibition at Print Center New York that I think seems like it's going to be addressing, I think, a long overdue topic, um, one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention and certainly deserves it. So can you kind of set the stage for me and tell me what were the first seeds of this exhibition? How did you two become involved in it? Did you pitch the exhibition? Was it pitched to you? How does an exhibition like this come into play? It happens through a lot of hard work and a lot of networking. Lauren and I, once Lauren and I knew each other and knew we sort of shared similar interests, I was already kind of in process of talking with Prince Center New York when it was then still called IPCNY about doing a show about female master printers. And we, we sort of knit our two interests together because Lauren is writing about three important mid-century printmaking workshops. And so Margaret Lohengrin, who's the topic of this show, was is one of her chapters and somebody who has always been of interest to me as well. And maybe, Lauren, you'd like to chime in here and maybe set mm -hmm. the stage for what, what mid-century printmaking was like in New York City. Sure. So I came to the topic through work in print study rooms as a junior curatorial staff member at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and then in the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. I've also on a couple of occasions taught history of printmaking with my own personal interest skewed toward modern and contemporary art. And as I would share artworks with community members and teach college students about this unique history, I myself was always frustrated that there was such a limited amount of scholarship on what I knew through looking at artworks themselves to be such a robust moment in time. And then being able to talk with Christina, who was already well underway on her own research into the 1940s and 50s, kind of affirmed for me personally a commitment to this time period that there would be enough and that there would be something substantial to contribute in getting to work. So I have to say, Christina's step ahead of me was really inspiring for me. And, and so when she raised the issue of focusing on Lohengrin, I thought that this was a really wonderful opportunity to focus in on this individual who in many ways would provide a narrative anchor to tell the story of the confluence of social, economic, and political streams that led to what would eventually become a pre-Renaissance. She herself kind of identifying that in some ways steps ahead of those figures that are perhaps more well-known, like Tatiana Grossman or June Wayne at Tamarin, Tatiana Grossman at ULAE. And we both found sincere excitement in digging into what would become a great amount of archival research in order to unearth the story of both this figure and all of the amazing accomplishments that are really the background to what is a really dynamic exhibition that brings together artworks made during the period in which she founded and ran the contemporaries, as well as the subsequent evolution of the contemporaries, her graphic workshop and commercial gallery, into what would become Pratt Graphic Arts Center. Yeah. And so in Margaret's life, how did she end up becoming the first woman to open her own printmaking studio? And I also am curious, is that in the United States or is that worldwide as far as your scholarship shows? It's a really good question. 
I think that as we've dug deeper, we we keep finding these really fascinating figures who I want to know so much more about. And I think we have to keep in mind what it was Margaret was doing, which was at first having a sort of hybrid space in the front was the gallery where she showed works of art, some made in the made at the contemporary, some not. And then in the back space, she had this workshop where she had a litho press, a silk screen set up and a small etching press. And this was was really unique. As we've we've like dug into this, uh, we've found there are some instances of women having their own printmaking workshops, but sort of acting in a contract printing kind of way. We before we started with you, we were talking about a fascinating figure named Esther Gentle, who was married to Abraham Ratner and had a workshop where she was silk screening reproductions of artists' work, some of which are now collected in museums as fine art prints. So there, there's like a lot of interesting questions that come up about how, how women were involved in, in printmaking in, at the mid-century and what, where were the places that they took leadership positions, became entrepreneurs, and really made history that heretofore has not been recorded. But Lohengrund herself had been a printmaker since her college years, having gone to the Pennsylvania Academy, studied at the Art Students League, was well aware of the intricacies of printmaking and the requirements for setting up a printmaking workshop. As an independent-spirited woman in in the mid-century, well-connected to printmakers within New York, as well as across the United States. She also understood the financial needs of her peers who were making prints at this time. And so in many ways, this biographical information that we know to be true, that in so many ways, this would lead her directly to starting a venture of this sort, of making prints, creating a facility that's accessible to professional artists, that would lead classes for novices, and then a gallery that would promote the most innovative work that she saw taking place across the United States. And trying to build a market for her peers led her to become such an innovative figure. It was by need and circumstance, but also personality and drive. Right. Mm -hmm. We have not uncovered anybody who has the same kind of, I would think, like, wheels turning in her head where she's thinking on so many different levels and trying to address so many of the issues that were facing not only her and her work as a professional artist, but but her peers. And if you were a mid-century printmaker, you either sort of made prints on your own, if you had your own press, or you could, if you were asked, collaborate with a publisher like Associated American Artists, You could contract with all sorts of independent printers like George Miller. And, but, you know, none of those were sort of the perfect option. And and Margaret realized the limitations of each of those. And which is why she wanted to, to establish this workshop that would be open to all. And similarly, there were limited exhibition opportunities. There were a handful of galleries at the time, such as the Jacques Selimic Gallery, that would... (laughs) occasionally present the work of contemporary printmakers or a gallerist named Grace Borgenecht. 
So this would, her kind of sole commitment to contemporary American printmaking was quite unique for this time. It's so interesting listening to you both tell this story. I'm really struck by the parallels between 1950s, 60s, and now. What you're saying about needing a workshop that has diverse revenue streams in order to survive and be sustainable. A lack of opportunities for contemporary printmakers to show their work. I mean, this could be 1951 or 2021, it almost sounds like. And Margaret was very, as you say, entrepreneurial. She tried a number of different ways to find a steady financial footing. And she constantly confronted a lack of income and was constantly reaching out to new partnerships in order to kind of not only shore up the resources needed to run the first version of the contemporaries, but also an ambition to grow with an ambition to provide even more professionalized spaces for the artists working at the print shop and an even more professional forum to present her works in a new gallery, an expanded version of the contemporaries gallery that took place in 1955. Right. And that's why we call the show a model workshop is uh, not only because it was um, a sort of headline that was given to describe the contemporaries in a, in a contemporary art uh, magazine, um, but it was also something that we really feel that Margaret was trying out different models, like being having this hybrid space, having these physically separated but allied gallery and workshop, becoming a nonprofit. All these were sort of different models that she was trying trying out. And unfortunately, she died very young at the age of 55. And I really believe, I'm sure Lauren does as well, that if she had lived, she probably would have tested a lot of other things. And she just wouldn't have stopped until she came upon the sort of thing that worked for that moment. Yeah, I was noticing that when I was doing research for our chat, that her shop was founded in 1951 and her date of death is 1957. So it's an incredibly short amount of time to be doing this, but it also seems like the workshop was really prolific. When you look at the list of artists she was able to work with, even within six years, it's kind of remarkable. She really did have a pretty significant impact. We, we did our very best to try and find out all we could about things in her lifetime. And then as the workshop continued at Pratt, as the Pratt Graphic Arts Center, but I mean, I think it wouldn't be exaggerating to say probably in the 15 years that we're looking at, we're talking about an order of magnitude of maybe a thousand artists who in some ways interacted with either the contemporaries or Pratt and, and as teachers, as students, as exhibiting artists, it, it definitely had a very, very large reach. One of the great joys of working on this project has been getting to know um, Margaret Lohengrund through archival material. We spent a considerable amount of time in preparation for the show, as well as for the exhibition catalog, seeking out the papers of the numerous artists with whom she had direct contact with. And we really did, through that research, understand her to be tenacious Understand, it, understand her to be forceful in her vision and persevere through obstacle. And it was wonderful to hear it in her own voice, as well as the voice of the other artists with whom she interacted, who would describe her 
and her veracity. Mm, yeah, that can be such an interesting thing as a scholar, and I remember that from my own research days, is when you really feel like you're starting to develop a personal relationship with this person who you won't ever meet because oftentimes they died long before you were born. But I always used to describe it as almost getting like a crush on them, you know, what? where you're just like, I just want to know everything about you. And it can be like a real feeling of like, like pursuit and wonder as this person starts to reveal themselves to you through, as you say, archival documents, letters, artwork, all that kind of thing. And that really helped inform the narrative that we are telling in the exhibition, the visual narrative that we're exploring in our exhibition. The first section of the show is dedicated to Margaret Lowe and Brenda and her work. We present intaglio prints made in the 20s and into the 30s. The way she shifted her focus, like many printmakers at the time, to lithography in the late 19, or in the mid 1930s, and her work on the Federal Art Project (WPA) and the kind of social viewpoint prints that she herself took alongside uh, many important artists, and the way she continued to work as a printmaker more, a little more intermittently up at Woodstock, where she had a press for a while and continued to make in a personal studio as well as at the Woodstock Artists Association and into the 50s with the occasional work um, that she found great joy in producing and we will be presenting ephemera as well to help people understand the story of this past that's a little less known um, and hopefully uh, visitors will get to know her through her artwork that was really important to us uh, not just her work as an agent of change but that this work was happening from a very personal place. Mm. And and in your research and uh, going through the archives, did you come across anything that spoke to any kind of limitations or obstacles she faced for trying to do this as a woman, kind of beyond the broader, more established patriarchal framework that, of course, was the 1950s? But any specific examples, or or did it seem more or less accessible for her? I think that she encountered many financial obstacles. I don't think that those were tied necessarily to her gender, but she was constantly, as we, we alluded to earlier, finding patrons who would support her work, particularly when the contemporaries left its initial space and divided itself into a new ground floor Madison Avenue gallery space that was like triple or quadruple the size of its original. She she had definite like Upper East Side collector types who were, were supporting the gallery. In terms of gender, for sure. I mean, I think any woman who artist, any woman who was working professionally in the 1950s was always viewed um, with a little bit of skepticism and a little bit of sexist attitudes. And you know, after she died. So like, I would say after she died and we're like going through the papers and, and seeing how people are talking about her retroactively, we did see some, I would say, unfavorable sexist commentary about what she was doing, in particular comments about how she had encouraged these diverse revenue streams and had women using the studio during the day to make lithographs or child, she was having children's art classes. And to me, I think that that's really smart. You know, you're going to maximize the 
the the workshop space and the time. And if that helps you keep the lights on, that's great. But in in the the sort of posthumous appraisal of of her and what she had done with the studio, some of her male colleagues didn't refer to this moment and these efforts in such a positive light. In addition, we must remember that she was supervising a staff of all male artist printers. And it was her job to oversee and ensure that work was done, it was done correctly, the prints were made in a professional manner, and that conduct was professional as well. And we noticed traces of resentment in that as well that was ascribed to her gender as well, as opposed to her role as a boss and supervisor for a venture she had a lot invested in financially and personally. And we can account that to the time or we can account that to her role as a woman business owner. Oh, yeah. A lot of hysteria. A lot of talk about hysterical this, hysterical that. She's coming in and yelling. But I think she was coming in and yelling because she was the boss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, kind of talking about like these parallels and speaking as a woman who has been in supervisory positions in the arts for about 15 years, 10 to 15 years I'm sure people have said things behind my back that probably were similar about the way I was choosing to make decisions and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's the way things change and the way things don't, I think, for sure, is part of the reason why these retrospective exhibitions are, are, are so interesting. And to this end, when we were thinking about another section in the exhibition, the one that focuses on the contemporaries, we were really confronted with the fact that there was a paucity of works presented at the contemporaries by women artists. And that was a real shame, but also for us, looking back at that period, I mean, let alone people of color as well, very scarcely represented, but we did think a lot about the time period in which this was taking place and the access that women had to both the training in print as well as the professionalization that was required in order to sustain a career in the arts. Yeah, when one studies history and when one often studies particularly women who are moving into male-dominated spaces throughout history, there can be a pattern that the women who do that aren't historically particularly interested in bringing other women into that space. I'm just curious maybe to throw that out there for you two and as you're getting to know this person and as you said, didn't seem like there was a lot of representation of female artists, if that was maybe more a personal choice or as you spoke to more just she was working with the artists who were available, many of which were not women. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I, through my first book on the women of Atelier 17 saw some of these really tight networks of sisterhood and what I labeled proto-feminist activity in, in various capacities, helping your fellow artists get an exhibition, introducing them to curators. And I just don't think that we saw that same kind of thing. It does not mean that, that Margaret wasn't sort of proto-feminist in her the way that she comported herself professionally in sort of being a visionary leader. But I just don't think that she had the same kind of mentality of, of like grabbing all these people who she had gone to art school with or traveled abroad with or grew up together in Philadelphia and like bringing them in. Her networks were really based in uh, New York City and in 
in Woodstock. And if, you know, you knew her socially, she would definitely get you to come in and it didn't matter who you were. So you see this like social circle that she was in and it tends to be a very, like I would say an eminent group in, in Woodstock. She's working with some of the leading printmakers of the day, like Adolf Den. And she got David Smith to come in. She wasn't from Woodstock, but passed through. She was able to pull on some other networks. You know, she got Alexander Archipenko to come make some prints. And then some, some really lesser known people who we just don't know, like Andrew Ruellen. She was a prolific printmaker. She's based in the Woodstock area and a good friend of Margaret's, but nobody is working on her anymore. <laughs> Yeah. And a lot of this conversation you've been talking about, the archives that you've been getting to dive into, and where were these housed? Was this something that Pratt had? Was this something that family members had? Where do you actually get that kind of raw material to build your research and to build an exhibition like this? We started both in the same place, which was, let's contact Pratt and see what they have. And Pratt did not have a, a ton. They had a little of it. Unfortunately, anything that predates the, the merger of the contemporaries with Pratt in 1956 was not retained in any, in any way. And, and so we, we, we explored what Pratt had and, and learned some really interesting things. And, and that was great. But the sort of nexus of our research really centered around couple different places. One was a great grandniece of, of Margaret's who core group of Margaret's professional life. And she had a lot of the newspaper clippings. Margaret was a pretty prolific newspaper illustrator and columnist in the 1920s. So we we're able to get little bits and pieces from there. And then we found a lot about sort of the backbone of the research came from the Rockefeller Archive Center which had all the back and forth as, as Margaret and Pratt were trying to get this major grant that helped propel the workshop into what it became, um, the sort of professional educational space. And then we just kind of, as possible, dipped into various artists' archives and pulled like a needle from, from a, a folder um, from the haystack and, and would kind of find those back and forth interactions between the artists and, and Margaret. And that was quite interesting. So and it was, it was a lot of, of like roundabout circles, spiraling and finding. Similarly, we spent a lot of time trying to track down the actual artworks that she showed in her space. We wanted our exhibition to really give us the contemporary current day viewer, a sense of what it would have been like to enter into the contemporary's gallery. And we used a kind of back channel in order to do so. We reached out to museums that have historic collections of color lithography or lithography in the United States from this period and asked them if they had retained trace and documentation of anything they had purchased or borrowed from the contemporaries and were able to work that way to help reconstruct the kind of visual aspect of the contemporaries, which was really exciting. Having registrars and curators dig around on our behalf and come up again with a single piece of paper that indicated um, a purchase 
or recognize a credit line for an artwork which had meant nothing to them in the past and really was a key to unlocking this part of history. Yeah, and I would say that in, in terms of museums, not many museums kept track of the vendor from which they purchased their prints. It was extremely rare to be able to find that in a, in a ledger or anything like that. We did occasionally find it, like I'm not going to blank on the name, the Sheldon Museum in, at the University of Nebraska mm-hmm. has a whole group of maybe like 10 or so works that that do preserve the contemporaries in their credit line, which was like so exciting to find. Mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, that's the thing about doing research is that it's, 99.9% tedium and mm. 0.1% just thrill. And that 0.1% is just what you chase. It's just like the whole time you're doing it. And it makes the rest of it worth it. Yeah. Absolutely. When this photo of Margaret that is on the cover of the exhibition catalog came to our attention, we nearly, well, we were just jumping for joy. Mm. Anytime we got to see her either in her spaces or as a young person, as a burgeoning painter, printmaker, socializing with her friends, anytime we got to see her, it it kind of added such texture and the kind of, the world came alive. And those were always exciting moments. Yeah, I could I can definitely connect with that for sure. And so the works that are in the exhibition, are these borrowed from the institutions that you were working with then? Or would they come from private collectors? And how many different lenders really went into creating this story? A lot, probably. <laughs> I think this is the biggest show, the, the largest number of loans that Print Center New York has ever put on. And so we're extremely grateful to their, their staff for facilitating these loans. I don't know the number of lenders there are. We have institutional lenders from MoMA, from the Whitney, from the New York Public Library. We have private collectors who have lended. We have families who have lent. We have galleries who have lent. We really have scraped everywhere to find the work that's that's on view. And what's been really, really wonderful is that whether it's a museum, an estate, a commercial gallery, or an individual everyone kind of has seen this as an opportunity to celebrate this historic, this moment in time. There's been a great institutional and individual enthusiasm since this has been such an unrecognized and underrecognized historic moment. And we're just so grateful that all of these figures, all these people are coming together to support our exhibition through loans. Yeah. And so you have all of this research, you've done all this effort, you've done the networking, you've found these pieces that you can get for the exhibition. How do you go about saying, how do we tell this woman's story? How do we tell the story of this workshop with this collection of prints? I think we wanted to evoke, so after you step out of the first nook in the in the gallery space and you get a sense of who Margaret is, we really wanted to divide up this sort of white cube. And so viewers, visitors to the exhibition will be able to sort of get this more intimate look at at various facets of the the contemporaries. And so each of the sort of little sections tells a bit about what, what what it was like. So we have a wall dedicated to staff who were employed 
printing, teaching, and being involved with demonstrations at, at the workshop. And then my favorite, hopefully it will be our favorite wall, is this like really packed wall where we recreate part of one of her large annual surveys called the Graphic Outlook. And it should just be uh, full, you know, salon style, everything hung like a jigsaw puzzle, just to give people this really solid sense of, of the breadth of work that she was willing to show that it was abstract, it was representational, it was woodcut, it was serographs, it was um, lithographs, and in all styles, you know, she just, she welcomed anything as long as the quality of the work was very, very high. And we also have a little section devoted to the Woodstock our, our workshop where she went every summer for the first three years that the contemporaries was around and show some of that, that like dovetailing of her networks in, in Woodstock with her efforts to keep the contemporaries on everybody's mind in the arts world. And as we get into Pratt, we're also trying to show with the works that we selected, again, the breadth of, of work that was being done there that it was international in scope, that Pratt Graphic Arts Center really welcomed and um, sort of facilitated this international exchange and made it possible for young artists from all over the world to come to New York and use Pratt as, as a stopping over point as they kind of acclimated to being in New York. And we also recreate this important exhibition that happened at the Jewish Museum in 1963 called 100 Contemporary Prints, in which you can see this amazing cross-section of what was happening in New York in the print world, including a lot of carryovers from the contemporaries' early days. Archipanko, I'm going to blank on some of these names, Lauren, please feel free to step in. Frasconi, Antonio Frasconi. Minocitron, people who had exhibited in the 50s, and then the these young pop artists, Jim Dine, David Hockney, are, are exhibiting, as well as some of the conceptual printmakers from Latin America, like Louis Kamnitzer, Lillian Porter, and others. It's sort of fascinating. Very cool. I mean, it's it seems like it's such an undertaking that you've got such a complex version of this person and of the workshop in your head. And so organizing the work in that way sounds really exciting, actually. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I, I'd be at the opening, but I'm actually going to be out of the country. That's the only thing that's keeping me away from the opening. That's the only legitimate reason. Yeah. I w- if I was on this continent, I would come see it. So, And that's September 21st. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And the show is open until December 11th, so there is plenty of time to oh, come later. De- December 23rd. Yeah. Wonderful. Even better. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely make sure that I see it at, at some point. Absolutely. So what do you hope that people come to understand who see this exhibition? Like, what would be your dream as researchers and curators that people take away or remember from it or maybe change their mind about something? Well, I think there's a handful of things. Um, There's numerous things that we hope people take away. I have to say, when I was entering this project, as I mentioned, I believed I knew there was an untold history um, that needed to be explored and shared. And it's been a great gift to do that through an exhibition. 
And to know that many people are going to be exposed to that in ways that I, that solely scholarly work would may not allow. Another goal of the exhibition is really to communicate this idea that at this moment in the 1950s, innovative printmaking was also often defined as innovative technique. And that this was a, an important stopover towards the ways in which print itself has expanded. That technique remains vital, but may not any longer be the sole account of what progressive printmaking, but that really was of central importance among the exploration of style, of course, and form, of course. But I think for myself, our analysis of 20th century printmaking rush often today rushes by how a moment of exploration was really important, of innovation, of technical innovation, of exploration was really central to allow us to get where we are today. And by presenting these innovative works, um, I hope that people can see that, see that progression and see and understand and under, uh, come to learn the names of the figures that really um, laid the groundwork for print that happened in the 60s and through today. I think for me, the the biggest takeaway that I hope people will leave with is that the 1950s was not this fallow period of nothing in printmaking getting done, which is what I feel we get when we read a lot of, of information about Tatiana Grossman and the founding of ULAE and June Wayne and the founding of Tamarind, which is that there was just nothing happening in the United States and that all the activity was in Europe. Like when we think about sort of the history of the 50s, it, it sort of bifurcates in this way. You get the print shops that get founded, that everybody worked at. You get the Warhols, the pop artists. And, and then there's a separate channel, the artists who really kind of worked at the university art gallery, the university print shops like Lazansky and Gabor Petterty and this is kind of like the overlap with the contemporaries or all of these artists who were super active in the 50s, but didn't get into that history of publishing printer publishers. And that's the overlooked aspect of the 50s. Mm, beautiful. What do you think Margaret would think of the exhibition? Well, as we've kind of outlined, we've really tried to recreate the spirit of the gallery and workshop. And the hope is that that would be apparent to not, not just to the viewers, but to Margaret herself. I think she'd have a list of like 10 things <laughs> that we missed. I bet. Yeah. And she would want us to correct them. I, I honestly think that she wouldn't be settled. She wouldn't settle for the version that we're telling. She would want it to be better. That's completely fair. Yeah. Yeah. As, as every person in pursuit of excellence is want to do, right? Was there anything that you feel like, how do I want to ask it? That's like, that was sort of like maybe like, like a near miss or something that you wish could be in the exhibition that wasn't like a lent, like a, a lending that didn't just come through or a piece of documentation you couldn't find. I know sometimes that can happen where you're in this big project and you're like, ah, like, there was this dramatic moment and it just didn't quite come to be. I just, can I just start by saying that and reiterate what was, uh, Christina mentioned earlier on that Prince Center New York has been Herculean in their efforts to realize our curatorial vision. The amount of support that they've provided us 
from the building of walls to the transferring of vintage film stock to digital in order to show a, a wonderful period film of, called How to Make a Lithograph to working tirelessly with ins- institutions, museums that have exacting requirement lo- um, loans for their requirements and ensuring that the art their loans would be secure and safe, that that has been um, an amazing amount of support. But yes, there is always the missed artwork that would have made the wall. And, I'm, and, and I'm, I have a couple in mind and I know Christina does as well. Yeah, and I would say we we feel really lucky to have a catalog as well. So things that couldn't make it into the show made it into the catalog. We we were l- working with a really beautiful and much expanded space because we started this project thinking it was going to be in the IPCNY's old space upstairs on the fifth floor, twenty sixth Street, I think it was twenty fifth Street, and now we have this wonderful opportunity to expand our show. So I think the catalog and the exhibition were kind of in in tandem together. So there are stories and tangents that we were able to run with in the catalog that didn't necessarily make it onto the walls. So for those who really want to deep dive, we would definitely encourage you to read the catalog in conjunction with seeing the exhibition. For example, we didn't talk about this at all, but the Contemporaries Gallery had a very strong relationship with showing the relationship between sculpture and printmaking. And so sculpture was always on view and we just, you know, could not get more work into the gallery, (laughs) three-dimensional work. So we've won, (laughs) but some of them were very large and, and or impossible to get as a loan. Yeah. Lauren, did you want to speak to, you said you had a couple pieces in mind. Is there anything you want to particularly address? The egg. Oh. The egg. And we, we illustrate this really dynamic print by an unknown or lesser known, barely known artist, but wonderful artist named Beatrice Grover. And it's just this, she called it prehistoric egg. And it's just a very large egg that looks like it's descending upon an ethereal body. It's the most bizarre and wonderful lithograph. And it just wasn't meant to be exhibited. So it wonderfully appears in the catalog. That sounds amazing. And the catalog looks and sounds incredible. I can't wait to to pick up a copy when I finally get to see the show because that's that's such a delight. And speaking as someone who's been a researcher and been around researchers and the fact that catalogs don't get produced nearly at the level that they used to for exhibitions, having that published document is going to be such a gift for future Margaret admirers, Margaret researchers, and all of that. So I'm just really excited that that is in the world as well. We're eternally grateful to the Getty Foundation for being the lead supporter of the exhibition, as well as enabling us to do such a robust catalog, as well as the additional support, foundation support we received once we were able to start to make the argument for the importance of having an accompanying catalog. Yeah, I think Wyeth uh, Foundation supported specifically this catalog and made it into what it is, you know, this beautiful you know, color, illustrations. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. And has that, that great photo that you spoke to earlier of, of Margaret in front of some works of art. Is, that, is it the photo taken in her gallery as far as you know? 
Mm-hmm. It is. And you get a wonderful sense of the history of exhibition design and gallery layout. It shows a very kind of vintagey look with cabinetry and all the kind of woodwork that one finds in a um, historic New York space. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's it's for those of you who can't see it immediately, give it a Google for sure. It's It's right up there on the exhibition's webpage. But it's not what you imagine a contemporary gallery to look like. We're not talking a white cube with, you know, 3.6 feet between each one and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Though we have, I have to say, when the contemporaries does move into its second space, it does kind of step into a kind of updated, more white cube-esque, though not, not exactly mid-century looking gallery space that we have attempted to recreate to some degree in our show as well with a kind of modular wall that looks wonderful. And we're grateful again to Prince Center New York for making that happen. Yeah. I was also going to comment on the, when you do Google the book and look at the image, as Lauren mentioned, there's this like kind of combination of Upper East Side, brownstone, ornate architectural element. And then she had these wonderful modern cabinets made that have these mm, sleek poles and I can't for the life of me figure out what these are and she took them with her to the second gallery I give like a reward to anybody on the podcast who's listening who can figure out what these cabinets are to me they look like they pull out and you would like like a drop down like a drop down and you would like stick matted prints in and it would be like a flip bin that you could close almost I've never seen this design anywhere else because they're kind of shallow, you wouldn't yeah, be able to. Shallow. You wouldn't be able to lay prints flat, nor necessarily would you want to if you're trying to sell them. You would want to be able to create a flip bin. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and when did this project begin? How how long has this has this been going on that will come to fruition in just a couple weeks? This was a COVID project. It started in earnest around fall 2020. The majority of our research, initial research, took place during quarantine, and then has really been consistent and steady drum over the past few years. So we're really excited to see it come alive in the exhibition space. Amazing. I mean, I remember having a meeting with Judy and Jen at Prince Center New York a couple of weeks before everything closed down and then calling Lauren, I think when I was locked inside with two young kids and being like, this is happening, but I have no time to do it right now. (laughs) Yeah. And Christina did heavy legwork while I had COVID and we had to get our grant Mm -hmm. in. I was waylaid for a month and she really, so it's been wonderful working together. You know, we've, kind of really forged this professional relationship that's been really enriching for me. And I, I mean, I assume for Christina, but we'll see. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm so looking forward to seeing it. I hope you two are incredibly proud of yourselves and are going to be able to really celebrate the accomplishment later on this month because it sounds like an incredible show, an incredible catalog, and I definitely encourage everyone to see it you have through December 23rd and so definitely head on out before we go would you two tell us where we can find you as individuals and as scholars and learn more about what you're doing out there on the internet 
I am hopefully putting up a new website shortly. That's been a a little side project. Um, But I guess I don't post all that often, but you can find me on Instagram and maybe nominally on X slash Twitter. But I don't post anything. Really, I guess my website would be the best place to see what I'm up to. And and what's the... Oh, it's just very self-serving. ChristinaWeil.com. Great. Lauren? I don't have a robust internet presence, but moving forward, you can see me at the Print Center in Philadelphia and reach out to me through there. Beautiful. Well, thank you both and congratulations. And I really look forward to seeing the fruits of all this labor in person soon. So thank you again. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Miranda. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Simone Guaita from Il Bisonte International Printmaking School in Florence. Il Bisonte was founded by Simone's Aunt Maria in 1959. And we talk about its exciting history, including anti-fascist organizing, nearly being destroyed by a flood, printing for artists like Picasso and Wonderlic, and what it's doing today as a thriving institution that hosts workshops for people around the world in their stunning location in one of the greatest art cities. We also talk about how you can go visit and what you might find there. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.